Jumping into a brand new series. The series is titled Foundation. And so I want to open up with just a little story. I, I grew up playing golf here in Spokane. We have some golfers in Spokane or in this church rather, right? Of course we're in Spokane. Any golfers? Raise your hands if you golf. All right. Yeah, I knew there's some in here. Okay. So I love to golf. I grew up playing golf and I actually played a lot of golf at a course called Wandermere um, Golf Course. It is up on the north side. It was near where we lived. It's where my high school team played. And if you've ever been to Wandermere, especially in the recent decade, you will notice or remember probably seeing up on the hillside that's on the east end of the golf course, these massive, beautiful homes. I mean, they're just stunning. They're, they're really incredible homes. And these are the type of homes that people who uh, kind of work towards a dream home, uh, they are up on the ridge, they have multiple layers of decks, they face the sunset. I mean, it is truly a great setting. But there's only one problem. At least one of the homes, to my research, has been condemned. It's actually been deemed uninhabitable. And it's kind of a wild story. It's actually truly shocking because they're only uh, a few years old compared to, I mean, there's tons of houses in Spokane that are well over 100 years old that are still standing. And so these newer homes to be condemned, to be deemed uninhabitable is wild. But the cause, this is the reason why I bring this up. The cause for them to be that is failed foundations. They were built on shifting soil. So these beautiful homes standing tall above the golf course, uninhabitable because of the way that they were built and what they were built on. No matter how well you build the walls of a house, no matter how quality your fixtures are, regardless of how opulent your decor is, nothing can prevent the demise of a house that's built on poor foundation. Correct? I mean, we know this. We know this. When you buy a home, you get it inspected, and one of the big things you want to know is, how's the foundation? Well, our series titled Foundation, we're going to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. And the, the core scripture, kind of the big idea scripture that we're walking through, or that we're tethering this series to, is found in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the sermon. And I want to read this to you. Matthew 7, 24 through 25 says this. This is Jesus' words. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Okay, quick quiz. Where does Jesus teach that we should build our house on the rock, right? Good job. You guys nailed it. The house is a metaphor for our life, right? And what does he compare the rock to? A person who hears the words of his teaching and puts them in to practice. So the Sermon on the Mount is going to be a series of teachings where Jesus takes what I'm going to call a spiritual mirror and puts it in front of each person who both hears and reads his words. Now, do you ever get uncomfortable in front of a mirror? You stand in front of a mirror and you're not like super psyched about what you see. I mean, it's really hard in front of a mirror to not be ultra critical, right? 
It's just, it, you just are most critical of yourself. But here's my encouragement. Don't get discouraged by these teachings. But focus rather, God bless you, focus rather on what Jesus is saying and do your best to live it out regardless and don't be discouraged. Jesus in this sermon is trying to answer the age-old question, how does one live a good life? That's a good question, right? That's a question that everyone ever has asked at least once in their life. How does someone live a good life? And Jesus' response, as we see here and as we'll see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is to listen to his teaching and live it out. It's as simple as that. Listen to his teaching and live it out. That way, when the storms of life, right, because his analogy that the storms of life are going to come and they're going to beat against your house, that it's not going to fall and you're not going to get wiped out. You're not going to get wiped out because it's really easy on a good day to be okay. But on a bad day, it gets less easy. And on a really bad day, it gets really, really hard. And Jesus is saying, this is how you live a good life. Listen to my teachings. So the sermon that we're going to study over the next eight or 10 weeks, the Sermon on the Mount, has been titled by many, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. It's actually just ahead of a few of Pastor Kelly's for me. And so Pastor Kelly, if you're watching, we love you, brother. Um, So that means that we need to pay very careful attention to our study of it. In fact, the more that we labor over our study of it, the more we understand Jesus' teachings rightly, and the more we can apply them correctly to our life, the more we can flourish as followers of Jesus. So this week, actually, what we're going to do, before we even dive into the text itself, before the sermon itself, is we're going to set the table for the sermon. We're going to give it the right context. We're going to give it... Uh, the proper setting so that you can do just that, so that you can understand what Jesus is doing, what he's saying, and how to rightly understand it as it would have been taught in that day. So instead of going to the sermon today, we're going to back up. We're going to back way up all the way to Genesis. So if you have your Bible or your app, you can turn to Genesis 1 in just a second. We're going to read it. Man, I love the smoke, right? And the reason is, is that in this sermon, and for that matter, throughout all of his teaching, Jesus references something very particular and very important. It's called the kingdom of God. It's a term you've probably heard if you're a Christian, if you've read the Bible, but it's not always something that we have a ton of clarity on. Because the kingdom of God is not simply part of the sermon, and it's not simply part of Jesus' teaching, but it's actually what scholars call a meta-theme throughout the Bible. This is a really big idea, and Jesus is going to talk about it a lot, so we need to understand it. So today, I want us to see that the kingdom of God was made, then it was lost, and it's being remade And the entire story, from when it was made to when it's remade, all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And just in case I'm not being obvious enough, Jesus is the point. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the main ingredient. 
He's the hero in the story. He's the North Star. He's all of the main thing analogies that you can think of and more when it comes to the story of the Bible and specifically the kingdom of God. So that's why when Jesus says to his audience, he says, hey, just as he did at the end, he says, hey, these things I just taught you, because that's what he's saying, these things I just taught you about, you should do them. That makes me think, as a Christ follower, that I should know and do these things myself, right? I should be able to understand them and apply them to my life because it's actually, and this is really important, the only way you can flourish. It's the only way you can flourish during your time on earth. Okay, so let's read Genesis 1 together. We're going to read the whole thing. Just in case you haven't picked up on this over the last month or so, it's really important to have a Bible in front of you. I'm going to have, I'm going to have the text on the screen, but if you have a Bible in front of you, we are going to read a lot of scripture here because that is the most important thing. The Bible's opinion is way more important than my opinion, okay? So I know most of you know that and appreciate that, but just in case you didn't, please bring your Bibles, okay? All right, Genesis 1, starting in verse 1, says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters and separate water from water. So he made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Verse 9. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with the seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning the third day. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with, leaving, with living creatures and the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. 
and there was evening and morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Okay, so Genesis 1, we see that the kingdom of God is established on earth, and God says that it's very good, very good. He's very pleased with his creation. The garden was the place where God and man could coexist in harmony partnering to rule the kingdom. We see that description over and over, giving them the, 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 the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, the command to you know, cultivate the animals, name them, cultivate the plants, name them, organize the chaos that is. He's partnering with them. The design from the very beginning, as we see in Genesis 1, is that there's this incredible place where heaven and earth overlap, where there's no death, no pain, no destruction, no hurt. But of course, if you know the story, that doesn't remain. That actually changes. In fact, Genesis 3, just two chapters later, it takes a dramatic turn. And we're going to read that together as well so you can see how the kingdom was made and now the kingdom is lost. So following along in Genesis 3, starting with verse 1, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, the serpent is crafty, just as it said. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit to eat and I ate it. Okay, guy, way to put the blame, okay? Not a great, not a great moment for men there. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said to the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And I, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat the food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she could become the mother of all the living. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments for skin, for garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so this is the moment when all the things that make life difficult enter the picture. Before this, it was wonderful. Again, the kingdom made a beautiful picture of God and man, cohab like just living in the same space, overlapping earth and the kingdom of God. It's a great place. But then we read in Genesis 3 that it falls apart. And there's a lot of reasons that it fall apart that we're not going to talk about today. But the reality is that the original design for the kingdom is no longer intact. The trajectory of humanity is all of a sudden changed and put on a very different trajectory. Now, if you read this and you don't know the end of the story it's actually caused to be very hopeless, right? The description of toil and pain and destruction that we see in Genesis 3. If that's where you stop reading the Bible, whoo, that's a bad day, right? But we don't actually stop there. We know that the kingdom of God will be fully remade. We don't just know this. We know, we know this because we know it from Scripture. In fact, in Revelation, we read an account 
of the kingdom being remade. John, who's a visionary, has this vision, and it becomes the book of Revelation, and it's foretelling of the things that are going to come. And this is his vision that is recorded in John 21, verses 1 through 5, of the kingdom being remade, and it's a beautiful vision. So let's read it together. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Okay, so this is the account of the future that is to come. No death, no destruction, no hopelessness, but a new heaven and a new earth together again. And it says that God was going to dwell with them. So we have the kingdom made, God dwelling with men. The the kingdom's lost in Genesis 3. Now they're ejected from the garden, living in toil, separate from God in space, but together still in relationship. And then we find out in Revelation that that is repaired. That is the future. So if Genesis 3 is where things fall apart and this new heaven and new earth are not here yet, what happens in between? Well, that's a great question. I'm really glad that you asked. So even though, yeah, great question. Uh, Even though the kingdom of God is not fully remade yet, it doesn't mean that we don't experience it in moments today. From Genesis 3 until now, there have been places where the kingdom of God invades our broken world. The first example of this is actually found in the Old Testament, and it comes to us in the example of a temple. Okay, so if you've been a Christian a long time, you probably understand the term temple and what it's for. And if you don't, I'm going to explain it in brief and do my best to help you understand. Early on in the Old Testament, the very first version of the temple is the tabernacle. It's this traveling temple that the Israelites would set up. In Exodus 26 and 27, God's actually giving instructions to Moses on how to build this tabernacle, and it was actually the place where God's presence was dwelling on earth. It actually held God's presence. In fact, there was a place called the Holy of Holies, and people didn't go in there because it was dangerous for them because of sin, and and it's this wild story, but the presence of God is actually on earth in the tabernacle. Then eventually, later on, the Israelites build a much larger fixed structure, and it's titled the temple. And it was under the leadership of King Solomon. In fact, if you want to read about it, 1 Kings chapter 6 is all about that. But the idea is actually the same. But it's a much more elaborate, ornate, beautiful building, still where the presence of God dwelt on earth. But then, Everything changes with the arrival of Jesus. 
everything changes. I told you, the point is Jesus. We're going to get to Jesus. In John 1, verses 1 through 5 and verse 14, John talks about, the gospel talks about how this has changed. So I'm going to read this to you. John 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word being Jesus, okay? He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's important. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So now, instead of a building to be the temple of God, Jesus becomes the place where God's presence dwells on earth. Jesus is the new tabernacle. Jesus is the new temple. God among his people. Jesus is the kingdom of God invading the darkness. So everywhere Jesus goes, his ministry, the entire time he's on earth, is about the kingdom of God being remade. Wherever he traveled, the kingdom of God was with him. Wherever he taught, the kingdom of God was his message. And of course, we know that Jesus's time on earth did indeed have to come to an end, but the kingdom of God is not gone. Jesus tells his disciples, the very first Christians, that he was going to leave. We have this account in John 14. But he says, hey, I'm going to give you another helper for you and for every Christian that comes after you. I love this scripture. Listen to this. John 14, 15 through 17 says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be with you. So Jesus is telling his disciples. Now, we've read a lot of scripture today, painting the picture of what the kingdom of God is doing. And Jesus is telling his disciples that in his absence, as he leaves the earth, he's crucified, resurrected, and then ascends to heaven to return to where he came from in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He says, hey, I am going to send you another helper, an advocate, who is going to be with you and in you, right? But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. The presence of God, because of the command of Jesus, the design that God had to send the helper, the presence of God is with us. The presence of God is in us. The presence of God is with his disciples. The presence of God is in his disciples. So do you know what this means? Do you understand the implications of what Jesus did here? You, as a follower of Jesus, this is the big idea, are now the space where God's presence overlaps with creation. You are the agent that God is using to drive out the darkness in this world and remake 
the kingdom of God. That, that is good news. Thank you, Scott. That is good news. This is part of the gospel. The gospel isn't just about salvation for when you leave earth as a human, right? When you're done living this earth, it's about right now. It's about having real life on earth right now in a way that you can flourish. That is part of the gospel message. You are the space where God is existing that invades the darkness. Wherever you go, God's presence is with you. Wherever you go, God's presence is in you. Okay, come on. That's right. Thank you, Chris. So how does this good news impact the Sermon on the Mount? Why is this important for us to understand as we get ready in the coming weeks to study the Sermon on the Mount? Well, when Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands, Jesus is not demanding obedience for obedience sake. He's not a tyrant, okay? He knows that in order for his disciples, which if you're a Christ follower is you, and is me, in order for us to flourish on earth, not just wait till the day we get to heaven, but for us to flourish today, that we must keep his commands. That is why we've arrived at the Sermon on the Mount. That's why we're going to stand in front of the mirror, as discouraging as it may be at times, And we're going to look at it, and we're going to let the Word of God change not just how we think, but how we do, how we live. It's the only way that you can flourish. It's the only way that you can live the best life possible, is to know His commands and do what He says. Now, if you're just about getting through life, getting through the day, and you don't want to flourish, okay, that's fine. I'm not about that, though, okay? You're going to be really annoyed with me because I'm going to talk about this a lot. But if you're about being the space that God uses to invade darkness, and by darkness, I don't mean physical darkness. I mean death, pain, destruction, hurt. If you're about doing that, then the stakes are so high that you can't not pay attention to what Jesus says. That's why this is so important. That's why we build our life on the rock that is Jesus. When he says that, we should listen because it's the only way we flourish when the stakes are so high. So let's say you're wondering what will happen if you don't apply Jesus' teachings to your life. Let's just say, if you're a believer, you're still going to go to heaven, okay? This isn't about earning salvation. You're going to go to heaven, but your life will be like the houses at Wandermere Golf Course. It will, not, it will look pretty maybe on the outside. You're, this is a beautiful group of people, okay? I, I mean, I, I, I'm saying that with all honesty, but if you're built on shaky ground... The slightest storm is going to bring collapse. The slightest movement in the ground underneath you is going to bring your collapse. And that's not what I want. 
I don't want it for you. I don't want it for me. So here's my encouragement. We're going to wrap up the sermon. We're going to actually sing a song in just a second to close out our sermon to praise God for this good news. But I want to encourage you with one really important thing as we move into the Sermon on the Mount to this series called Foundation. I want you over the next couple months, every single week, at least once, to read the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to stand in front of the mirror that is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teachings, the ones that he says, if you want to live the best life possible, do these things. I want you to read it. I want you to reflect on it. I want you to memorize it. I want you to read other books about it. I want you to hear our, our sermons on it. I want you to talk to other people about it. I want you to know it because you can't do it if you don't know it right? You just can't do it if you don't know it. And so being here Sundays alone is not going to cut it, okay? No matter how much you love Pastor Rick and Pastor Kelly, okay, and everyone else who's going to help with this process, it's just not going to be enough. So I want you to stand in front of the mirror. The more you do it, the more comfortable you will be with what you see. The more you'll be able to do what Jesus says, the more you'll be able to flourish today, not just wait for that moment when you meet Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we hear your word and as it strikes something in us, God, as we learn about the kingdom of God and this fact that you are remaking, you are making all things new, but we're not there yet. And so God, in that transition time, God, I pray that rather than just trying to get to the end, that we would be about today, that we would be about flourishing the best way we can, that we would know and keep your commands, that we would show our love to you by keeping your commands. And God, we know that you're not a tyrannical overseer, but you are the God who has given us life And you want nothing more than the best for your children. So God, despite how hard and broken it can be in this world, God, with the hope that we have for the future, I pray that today we would flourish. I pray today that we would be changed, that your commands and your teachings would show us how to flourish a little bit more tomorrow. And I pray blessings over this church, God. Everyone who's here, everyone who couldn't be here today, that as we approach your teachings, Jesus, that you would work in our lives and that we would be encouraged and not discouraged. We need that from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us as we sing one more song?